Paul is now finishing the letter that he has written to the churches that are in Rome and he's drawing it to a close and he's going to commend the lady that we think is carrying the letter and in verses 3 through 16 tell them and them and them that I said hey tell them hey and he gives brief descriptions about them verse 1 to the church in Rome Paul says I commend to you our sister Phoebe a servant a diakonos the Greek word there I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Synchria. Why are you commending her to us? Romans, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints. Welcome her in a way worthy of the saints. I know you don't know her. Welcome her. I'm telling you, you need to welcome this lady and help her in whatever she may need from you. Why? For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. And then the list. He's really winding it down. All the theology. All the application. Paul's now winding it down. He knows some folks there. He's never been to Rome, but he says the following. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who... Risk their necks for my life. Greet them, fellow workers in Christ. They risk their necks for my life. To whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. This couple, all the churches know about them. They're famous. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus. Who's he? Who was the first convert to Christ in Asia? The first convert under my preaching was years and years ago. I forget how old I was. I might have been 12, 13, 14, but it was a young man named Brian McElreath who now lives in Charleston. Got saved when he was five years old. Paul is remembering. Hey, Epinetus lives in Rome. You tell him that I said, hey, give him a greeting for me. He was the first convert in Asia. I remember him well. Verse 6. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia. Here's a couple. My kinsmen, I don't know that that means immediate, close, close family, or if Paul's just saying Jews, or is he saying Jews who are of my tribe of Benjamin, but either way. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They'll remember we were in prison together. They are well known to the apostles and they were in Christ before me. They got saved before me. Now, by the way, I'm not going to have time to hit all these. I'm going to make a couple of comments as we go through. That phrase, they are well known to the apostles, is disputed a little bit. Not like argumentative, but there's choices. You see the way the ESV has translated it. Okay? They are well known to the apostles, which would make us think the apostles, the twelve, know them. But it also could have been rendered... Uh, they are well known among the apostles, which means they are apostles, which means, wait, they're not some of the twelve. No, there was the twelve, but the churches also had sent out ones. So Jesus had his sent out ones. The churches had their sent out ones, which would mean this is a missionary couple. Paul saying they were saved before me, which would mean Paul was trying to kill them at one time, his own family members. He didn't care. He thought Jesus was a heretic, and anybody following Jesus is a heretic until he met Jesus. And then Paul became an apostle of Christ himself. Verse 8. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Really love him. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. And my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Just real quick commentary about Apelles. He's been approved like metal. Is this real gold? Is this real silver? Silver? Let's put it to the test. Is he a real Christian? Apelles came through the test and was revealed that he really was an approved Christian. Still in verse 10. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Does not mean Aristobulus himself is saved. 
but his family became Christians, and Paul knows that they're there in Rome. Greet my kinsman Herodian, another, don't know how closely related to Paul, but a Jew, apparently of the tribe of Benjamin. Greet him. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Again, not saying Narcissus is a Christian, but those that are in his family, some of them were Christians. Tell them that the Apostle Paul says, hey, greet those workers, verse 12, greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Most people think these are twin sisters. Dainty and delicate is what their names mean. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis who has worked hard in the Lord. Has worked hard probably means she's an older lady who's had a long track record of working hard. Verse 13, I'm not going to be able to go into this one. We'll throw it out. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Rufus, apparently, most commentators believe he has a brother named Alexander. His father was named Simon who carried the Lord's cross. And he would have come up out of Africa. You remember the song some of you years ago called Watch the Lamb. And Daddy, Daddy, what have we seen here? Just watch the lamb. And all of a sudden, this man who comes from Africa to take part in the Passover, next thing you know, he's trying to mind his own business. And the Roman soldier said, you carry Jesus' cross. He's struggling to carry it. You carry it the rest of the way. Totally interrupts his plans. But apparently, Simon gets saved, has two sons named Alexander and Rufus. And Rufus now lives in Rome. And Paul is saying, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, this would have been Simon's wife. Who has been, Paul says, who's been a mother to me as well. The idea like a mother. This woman is just like a spiritual mother to people. Verse 14 and 15. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet that group. 15. Greet Philologus. I didn't read this, and I'm certainly not a Greek scholar. I wish Larry was here this morning. I could have asked him, but I'm pretty sure philo means love, logos meaning word. Catch this guy's name. Hey, greet Philologus, the lover of the word. Greet him and Julia and Nereus and his sister and Olympus and all the saints who are with them. So verse 14, greet that group that are with them. And verse 15, greet that group over there that are with them. In fact, while we're at it, Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss. And now we're going to pause and greet one another. With, um, hold on, no, we're not doing that now. And Paul closes by saying, all the churches of Christ greet you. The idea, you Romans. So, didn't want to do running commentary, so I asked the Lord, Lord, would you give us some structure here? And as you see from your handout, we don't have three thoughts. We don't have four. We don't have five. I sound like LeBron James. Not one, not two, not three. We got six thoughts this morning, and there won't be long thoughts, any one of them, but I want to hit six things. And listen, I'm going to warn you. Ready? These are the simplest things you've ever heard if you've been a Christian for a long time coming to a church, but... God has sovereignly brought you here today to hear these six simple statements and take them in from this passage. And you may be thinking, honestly, I don't see six thoughts. All I see is a list of names and a few little commentary. I don't, what's the point? Simple, simple. Here we go. Number one, what does the Lord want to show us today? Number one, the church is made from people. Not Jeff, really, that's not deep. We already know that. The church is made from people. Did you sense that in this text? Look back at verse number 5. Look at verse 5. Greet. Paul says, greet also the church in their house. Greet the church that's in their house. Verse number 14. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Verse 15. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Hey, what are these called? Give me the two words. What's happening here? These are, what is it? Two words. Say it. Got one young man uh, confident enough to say it. House churches. These are house churches. Hey, tell Prisca and Aquila, I said, hey, and all the people that are meeting in their house church. Over here's this group meeting. And some people think there are six house churches represented in this, in this list. Now, I know you know this. You know it here. But I really want you to check your heart right here. Let's really get real serious 
while we're at it, check your heart. Do you think of this building as the church? Is there, don't raise your hand, but if there's one person here this morning, your thought is, oh yeah, 120 Centerville Road, that building over there, or maybe the one that's over on Pyramid Dairy, that's Graceview Church. That is not Graceview Church. This building, the Lord's blessed us. I love our building. So thankful how Mike helps keep our grounds and our buildings looking nice. This is not Graceview Church. Let me go further. If you have anywhere in your subconscious a thought that the church is a pastor or a staff or a pastor and his wife and them and their staff and we just come and kind of mingle in and visit, you've got to overhaul your thinking. A church is not a pastor. A church is not a list of rules. Oh, that's the strict church. That's the loose church, right? That's the real Bible-centered church. That's the social outreach church. That's not the church. You say, what in the world's the church? Wherever, that's a key word, wherever God's people meet to worship Him, wherever they meet to worship Him, pray to Him, fellowship together, encourage one another, exhort one another, study in His Word, wherever that may be, they are the church. Out under an oak tree, out on a dock beside the lake, meeting down by a river, down on the beach, somebody's backyard around a bonfire. What, what is that over there? Oh, that's a church. Meeting in someone's living room, that's a church. Whether they have a pastor or don't have a pastor at the time, look, there's a church. What are they doing? They're worshiping God, praying to God, encouraging one another, exhorting one another, praying together, fellowshipping together. I don't know who it was. Someone, as they looked at this list, I can't remember, and I, honestly, I think I read more into it than they even offered. It was suggested, and I'm going I'm to agree with this, my opinion what Paul is giving here in these 26 names, 27 if you count Phoebe, she's not part of the Roman church yet, she's headed that way. 26 names, what's going on here? I think this is Paul's prayer list for the Roman church. And that stuns me. That convicts me. Paul, with all that he has going on and all that he knows about all the different churches, remember, he lays these foundations. He lays these foundations. Other people come and build on the foundation, and he moves on as a pioneer missionary. He has all these churches that are under his authority, and he knows things that are going on in each, each one of them. He thinks of the Roman church, and he thinks of 26 names, and he knows where they're at and who's in what group. I know who's in that group. I know who's in that group. He didn't have Facebook. Paul is up on this. I think this is his prayer list. When he prays for the church at Rome, he's not praying for it. Thinking, he's not thinking of a building. He's not thinking of someone's house. He's going down a, he's, a list. That person. Rome, oh yeah, they're there, and they're there, and that person, and that one, and that. You've got to read the New Testament. Paul tells the Ephesians, I'm praying this for you in chapter 1, that the Lord will give you enlightenment and understanding. Chapter 3, I'm praying that he'll give you enablement and power. Hey, you Colossians, I'm praying this for you. I want you to have a knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you'll walk worthy of the Lord. Hey, you Philippians, I'm praying that your love will abound more and more and more. And I believe every time Paul's praying for these churches, he's not just praying for an area, a city. He's going through names of people. So I've got to ask you before I move to the second point. Do you have a prayer list? Do you have a prayer list? You may say, Jeff, I tried that and it put me in a rut and it just kind of got rote and just kind of boring and I don't do a prayer list. I do more spiritual and things like that. It's more spontaneous and I understand that. But what if a prayer list helps you be more productive and on point and specific? I'm going to share something. I hope no one gets mad at me. I wish I could come in and tell you that I got up at 3 o'clock and prayed for every single one of you this morning. But I sleep till 5.30 on Sunday morning. And I have a routine. And I, at 5.30 I do something until roughly around 6.30 and at 6.30 I begin a prayer time. I pray a lot for me. I pray more for me than I pray for you guys on Sunday morning. But the Lord knows my heart. I pray for each area, really playing off of our Sunday schools. And I'll often start with our little babies and Jen Scott and going on down to our toddlers and, and uh, uh, Danielle and, and uh, Doug Balker and then moving across the hallway and I'll go through that and then I'll end up over in the other building. Now we have four classes that are meeting over there and now we have four classes that are meeting over here and tonight we have college students. And I pray for every member by name for this worship team, whether they're in a vocalist, 
or an instrumentalist. And I pray for people who are in that sound booth right by there. It ends up being about 15 or 16 different groups. I pray for their class and the people who are going to be teaching and spouses that are in there. And it takes a little bit of time. And I pray for everybody. I was really touched when Wednesday night, even moved Wednesday night when Brandon said, hey, can we just meet and have a time of prayer before the base camp kicks off tonight? And so we're down here in one of these rooms. I shared this with the Wednesday night group already. And Brandon just started praying and he just started weeping and he didn't have a list in front of him, but he was going from task and name, name by name, naming each person and the task they were doing. He went through all 14 of his workers that night. And I said, do you have a list of that? And he's like, well, no. And he was just going through. He has a system, no doubt like I. He was starting here and going through all of that. And he was just pouring his heart out, begging God to bless that night and work through those people and bless those people. Behind every name is a soul that is eternal and needs. That's the church. Behind every name on this list is a life story. And Paul says, I was in prison with that one. That one I've worked with. I'm related to that one. They were saved before me. Those work really, really hard. Thought number one this morning, the church is people. Pray for people. Don't just, Lord bless Graceview Church. Name people. Name requests. Love people. Second thought. Number two. So we look at verse number one and two, I think. To me, here's the main thought. You say, well, Paul is commending this lady, Phoebe, but I think here's the main thought. Simple, you ready? We should live commendable lives. I'm going to propose that to you this morning. Are you living a commendable life? You're like, what is a commendable? Can someone commend you, refer you, give you a reference? Are you living a commendable kind of life? Look at verse 1. Paul says to the Romans, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sincrea. And the reason he's doing this, so you may welcome her and that you would help her in whatever she may need. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant. A couple of things, not going to bog down here, but Sincrea, if you were to imagine the city of Corinth, I, you need to take time at some point to pull your maps up and you'll see Macedonia in northern Greece and in southern Greece is Achaia. And right where there's a little isthmus, a little land neck, not far from there is Athens and then there's Corinth in the middle of that. If you were to go east of Corinth, seven miles, there's this port city called Sincrea. That's where Phoebe is from. But notice the word here, and this is not original to me. Everyone points this out because it's true. Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a diakonos of the church at Sincrea, the church at Corinth. What's going on there? What's that word? You know what that means, right? We got four diakonos here at Graceview. What is he calling Phoebe? Phoebe is referred to as a servant, a servant who is a what? A deacon, or the idea of deaconess. And so for that reason, many people who read this passage say, what Paul is saying of Phoebe is that she was a deaconess in the church at Sincrea. And so some, I know immediately, here's what you, will, here's what you just heard. So are you saying that she's one of the overseer rulers of the church at Corinth? Phoebe was one of the, No, that's not what the Bible said. She was a deaconess. I don't know if this is saying, and this is debated, was there a structured office at this time already developed in the church and she was a deaconess of that church or is it just Paul saying she is a servant because the title deacon deaconess is reserved for people who do servant work in the church it's not about overseeing and ruling and governing in the church it's those that serve in the church whether she was officially part of that office or if Paul was just using it as a descriptive word of how she lived her life she was a servant worker but look at verse 1 again. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sincrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in the way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. She's been a patron of many and of myself. Referral letters. That's what's happening. After 15 chapters, there's two verses. You say, what's happening here? Paul is giving a reference for Phoebe. Referral letters are not new. Just in the last week to 10 days... I have been asked to do two referral letters that have to do with my position here as the pastor at Graceview. Two different, two different people. So what, what's happening when there are referral letters? Watch. Here's a person, it may be a person or an institution, and here's a person over here that's perhaps wanting to join. They're getting ready to have interaction with this institution or person. 
but this person doesn't know them and they don't know them. And so each side has a vested interest in asking a third party that is trusted. This person says, hey, would you give me a letter of recommendation? Would you give me a referral letter? Would you give me a good reference? And this person over here says, we know you, we trust you, or because of the position you're in, we're looking, could you, we don't really know you, but apparently you're in a position, would you give us a reference for this person? We don't know them. We're about to have an interaction. Watch. This is not to be done lightly. Don't do this lightly. I hope she don't mind me saying this, but Deanna and I have talked before in her women's ministry. She'll have ladies come to her Bible studies, and they'll come like one or two times. The next thing she knows, she's getting an email. Hey, can I use you as a reference? And literally, they just sat out there, really no conversation other than, hey, how are you doing? What's your name? This, that, and the other. And they're like, hey, can I use you as a reference? How can she give a reference? Here's my point. Before you ask someone to give you a reference, stop and think, do I want them giving a reference if they were to be totally honest about me? Do you want them to give a reference? If you're ever asked to give a reference, this is important. Be careful how you give a reference. The one giving it is not to give a reference and a referral lightly. They must tell the truth. You say, why is it so important to tell the truth? You did not just ask that in your head, did you? Why is it important to tell the truth? <laughs> For truth's sake. We're supposed to tell the truth. But more than that, when you're giving a reference, you are the eyes for the person that is in a place of blindness. They don't know this person. They don't know their history. They don't know their makeup. I wonder how many people have gone in for an application, be it to a school or for a job, and they set an interview, and they gave some references, and a couple of weeks later, they show up to the interview, and the interview does take place, but they kind of feel, I just feel like I never had a chance in that interview. Yeah, the reason you put down three references and all of them told the truth about you, and the person sitting there is like, yeah, whatever you say, I'm not hiring you because none of them had anything good to say about you, right? Got to be honest. Have to tell the truth. This is important. That applies to churches who ordain pastors and elders and deacons. It's very important. I was not ordained by Graceview. I was ordained by a church called Bethel, and I should have looked this morning, at the request and evaluation of six or seven men who evaluated me, and they made a proposal to, Beth, uh, to Bethel to ordain me into the ministry. When a church ordains a pastor, a deacon, an elder, and they put that title on them, what that church is saying is to the community and to the world and to any future church, wherever that person may serve in that capacity, we know this person, we've watched their life, we've evaluated their life, we see the hand of God on them, we see the blessing of God, we see the gifting of God, they meet the qualifications of the New Testament, and we wholeheartedly put our referral behind them. We've ordained them into the ministry, we want it to be known very important don't just hand those things out loosely so the thought comes to me young people older folks like myself have you lived a life that your school principal could say I wholeheartedly refer this person to you where your school teacher where your coach where your pastor where your employee, where your co-workers could say, hey, they're awesome, you would do well. Could a principal say of you guys, you young folks, if you get them into your, they're going to some college and some college is going to be blessed to have them, they're going to be a tremendous asset. Or a teacher's going to say, you will do well, you need to go out of your way, get this young person. Or would they have to say, eh, they cause a lot of strife and they don't really work well with others. and They have gifts, but they're as lazy as the day is long. Got to be honest. Guys, live in a, a way that is commendable. Quickly, look at verse 1. Paul gives three points of reference for Phoebe. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Syncria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints. Help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron. Catch it. Three things about Phoebe. She is a sister. Hey, any one of these is a tremendous point of reference. Any one of these should get her into the church at Rome. Hey, Romans. Hey, Romans. They're reading this. She's one of us. Paul says you're a sister in Christ. Absolutely. Paul says you're a servant. Apparently you're one you really serve. You're like, whether you got the title or not, you really lead in service. You get things done. Well, that's what he says, and that's what the church says about me. And Paul says she's not only a servant and a sister in Christ, she's a patron. What does that mean? Apparently Phoebe is a businesswoman. This is the common idea. I don't see any reason to think otherwise. 
She does well at business. She's leaving Corinth where Paul is writing the letter to the Romans. She's headed to Rome. I don't know if it was arranged, how it was arranged. I don't know if Paul said, hey, will you give me a week before you leave? I want you to take something to the church at Rome. Sure, I can wait. Or you're leaving in a couple of days. I don't know how long it took him to write this letter. She's headed to Rome. Paul writes his theology and all the applications and then process. She's going there apparently on business and she is blessed in her business. She has resources. She has finances. But she doesn't hoard it all to herself. She's blessed Paul's ministry. She's blessed other people's ministry. Paul's saying she's been a patron. She serves the Lord. She's a giver and a server. Watch this. She's not just wealthy and gives resources but don't ask for my time. And she's not the person who says, I have resources, I'll give you my time, but don't ask for any of my money. No, this woman is exceptional. I give of my resources for the Lord's work, and I give of my time. She's a both-and kind of person. That's what Paul's saying. You're getting a good one coming there. And so after all that she's done for Paul and supporting Paul's ministry, Paul finally gets a chance to do something back for her, and he gives her a recommendation. If I could paraphrase verse 2, I think here's what Paul's telling the church in Rome. Rome, you don't know her. Listen. But if this lady asks for something, if this lady needs something, get it for her. Why? This lady gets things done for God. To support her is to support the cause of Christ. She needs something, get it for her. Do you really think she's trustworthy and reliable? Absolutely. The proof is in her hand. The proof is in these two verses, but the proof, the proof is in her hand. When she carries in the, the letter to the Romans, in essence what Paul is saying, I trust this woman so much that the most valuable letter that's ever been written, I'm giving to her to take to the churches at Rome. She is dependable. My question, are you dependable? Do you live a life that those who know you could tell people who do not know you, you can trust this person, they're hardworking, they're servant spirit, they're givers, workers. Reliable, dependable. Welcome her as a saint. Welcome her as a sister. First number, not first, but third thought this morning. So thought number one, the church, its people. Thought number two is what we just discovered about Phoebe, and that's this. We should all live commendable lives, thought number three. Did you catch this? It kind of runs all through Lord, would you show us what are the themes? What's happening here? What's the structure? Number three, we, you already knew that blank, right? Y'all knew that was blank. I try to make these blanks where you won't automatically know them. Or if you do sit there and try to go ahead and guess them, at least you'll have to work a little bit. I don't want them to be too obvious. So number three was probably obvious. We accomplishes more than, say it, me. We I think this is a theme in Romans 16. We accomplishes so much more than me. That's what's happening here. You know what Paul said? Hey, we talk about Paul's missionary journeys. First missionary journey, second, third, Paul's missionary journeys, and rightly so. He's the point man. He's the one who's doing most of the talking. He's the consistent figure in each of the missionary journeys. But do you realize when you study the book of Acts and other passages, Paul hardly ever ministered alone. He always seemed to be working in teams. I find one place in the book of Acts where I feel like Paul was alone, and that's when he left Thessalonica. He had to leave quickly. There was some violence going on, and things were getting rough, and the team decided, send Paul ahead, get him out of here. He goes down to Athens, so he leaves northern Greece, heads down to southern Greece, goes to Athens. Listen, I don't think it went real well in Athens. A little bit of success, basically rejection. I think Paul leaves a little wounded from Athens and arrives at Corinth, Maybe discouraged. And I think that's like the one time I really see Paul on his own. And he's waiting on Silas and Timothy to get here. And they really can't get there soon enough. Billy Graham is credited. What? Leading to Christ. Hundreds of thousands of people. Some of you are saying, eh, up, go up. A million people to Christ. Let that sink in. And most of you are thinking, mm, that's not the numbers I've heard. Need to go up. Maybe millions of people. Billy Graham led millions of people to Christ. Possibly and probably more than anyone in the history of the world. And yet Billy Graham knew the value of a team. You know what they told us? He never would go into a hotel room by himself. He always had a partner, and the partner, somebody on the team, would go in and look under the mattresses and look in the closets. 
Look behind the curtains. Just make sure there's nothing immoral that could hurt and damage his testimony. You ne- you've never heard a bad word spoken about Billy Graham's testimony. Why? Because he's just not out there ministering alone. He realized the value of a team. Billy Graham doesn't just show up, find a platform, and start preaching. There's a tent set up in the early days, and somebody's on the phone in the latter days, in the middle of the latter days, setting up at a stadium and making arrangements, and someone's putting up a stage and running wires and setting up sound and getting the music together and getting the testimonies together. Someone's meeting with all the churches and the pastors and and getting the volunteers ready. And do you really know how to work with people who are going to come forward? Do you really know how to lead them to Christ? And once that's done, do you know how to get them assimilated into the churches? We don't want to just get them saved. We want to get them disciples. It's a whole team effort. That's why it was called the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. The Billy Graham Evangelistic Team. Yes, everybody knows Billy. No one knows the people behind it, but it wasn't just Billy Graham. This is important. Something powerful happens when God moves among a team of humble servants, here's the key, who genuinely do not care who gets the credit. That's important. How come it's Paul's missionary journey? Why is it called the Billy Graham evangelistic team? Everybody's talking about what Billy's done. God moves powerfully when the team is full of servants who are humble and genuinely. We don't care who gets the credit. We just want God to move. Can I just say this? I love our Graceview team. I love our team as a whole. And within our team as a whole, our church, there are teams within our team. There are I have a team that I work with on a regular basis. I'm just telling you a personal testimony. I am very thankful for them. I am grateful for how God has assembled them and gifted them and how He has made them. Very complimentary to me being here. You've heard Deanna say that several times. Can I share this? I love that Deanna and I truly standing here today. What's today? September 9th, 2018. In our heart of hearts, we really have a desire to grow old with our team. And if God just lets us grow old together and the team just stay intact, if it's added to, awesome, but just love our team. Love it. Do you serve on a team? Because the people that I'm talking about, they have teams and they recruit and they train and they engage and they mobilize and they equip others. So we end up having multiple teams. Are you on a team? Are you part of a team? There's something powerful when the teamwork is used and God works among those people. Would you look back at verse number three? I am going to throw something out. It's possibly inaccurate, just my opinion. Really. So verse number three through verse 16, we have this word greet all these different times. I think there's a possibility that Paul is beginning at the top and he's working his way down, possibly beginning with those who are the most familiar to him and working to those perhaps who are the least familiar to him. If that's the case, it is a no-brainer why he's going to say Prisca and Aquila, they're very important to Paul's team. Very, very important. I want to take a moment and say, Jeff, are you going to go over all these people that were on Paul's team? Don't have time. I want to talk just a moment about Aquila and Priscilla representing the group. Follow this timeline. By the way, if you want to make your way over to Acts chapter 18, flip over to Acts 18. We'll be back in Romans in a little bit, but Acts 18. So here's a timeline of things that we know by connecting it all together, a timeline of the life and ministry of Prisca and Aquila, this husband-wife or this wife-and-husband duo that was part of Paul's team. You ready? You there? Here we go. Pretend you're looking at a map, and I'm going to try to do this from your perspective. Here's the first thing we know about Prisca, Priscilla, the elongated version, and her husband, Aquila. So I'm going over to the west, so your left. I want you to imagine that up here is Rome. That's where they start when we know in, in probably the middle 40s, middle to latter 40s, they're over in Rome. Not 1940s, the 40s. The middle to latter 40s. But they're kicked out of Rome because the emperor at the time was a man named Claudius. Emperor Claudius kicks all Jews out of Rome. And the documents, the historical documents say it has something to do with someone named Crestus. Don't know what was happening there. But apparently the Jews are arguing back and forth. And there's a big uproar in, in Rome 
over someone named Crestus, who we think was probably the Christ. Some of the Jews thinking we're still looking for the Christ and Christian Jews saying the Christ has already come. They're fighting and arguing and Claudius doesn't want to get involved and he says, you know what, all you Jews get out of my city. You're done. Get out. And they have to, they have to leave. And so Prisca and Aquila leave Rome and they go down from Italy to Greece to Corinth. And that's where we find in verse number 1 of chapter 18. Paul's on his second missionary journey. Watch what the Bible says. I alluded to this a while ago. He's alone at this point, one of the very few times. Acts 18, verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens. Remember, it didn't go great there. Mostly rejected. Mocked. Made fun of. you believe that? All the smart guys have a hard time believing in Christianity. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Not that far away, both in southern Greece. And he, watch the wording, he, Paul, found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus. This is an area up in northern what we call Turkey. Well, what's he doing down in Greece? Well, he used to live in Rome, now he's in Corinth. So verse 2, Paul found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he, Paul, went to see them, Aquila and Priscilla. And because he, Paul, was of the same trade, he stayed with them. He's living at their house and worked. The idea, he works for them, for they were tent makers by trade. And he, Paul, reasoned in the synagogue, the Jewish synagogue, every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks to catch it. Aquila and Priscilla are in Rome. They're kicked out. They go down to Corinth. They're starting their business up. They work with leather. They make tents. All of a sudden, here comes Paul on the second missionary journey. He's leaving Athens, maybe a little wounded, maybe a little discouraged. We know from the book of Corinthians, he doesn't want to charge the Corinthians, come in and start, hey, give me all your tithes and offerings so I can preach the gospel seven days a week. He doesn't do that. He comes in. Paul says, I need a job. He has a trade. His trade is tent making. And a little different than we do it now. They didn't do, I'm giving a lot of history here. They, do, they did not do like we do now. Back then, they would have these streets and all of the tent makers would be on one street. It would be like if in Anderson, all the people who sell tires and mount and balance tires are all on one street. Somewhere along the way, we got a little smarter than that and said, hey, why don't you take this section and you over there and I'm going to go over here and that way we'll be all around town and people can find us easily rather than one place. That's not how they did it then. Here's all the tent makers. Paul needs a job. He comes in, and apparently he's seeking out employment. He finds a man that is a Jew. His name's Aquila. Finds out he's new. You've not been here that long? Nope, we're just kind of starting our business. Do you have any opening? Finds out Paul's a Jew? Sure enough. And Paul starts working for them. They tell us that you would work out of the shop on the first floor, and then the family would live on the second and even the third floor, depending how much money they have. So Paul's working out of the first floor, and he's, he's apparently sleeping down there. Get the picture. Paul. You say, missions must be glamorous. Picture Paul during the day, and he's got some kind of apron on. Hey, what can I do for you? Yeah, I need 20 of these and 14 of these. All right, and there's Paul. And when you want that, buy it. All right, picking it up Friday or Thursday. Sounds good. It's going to be this month. It sounds good, man. Appreciate it. That's what Paul's doing for six days a week. And on Saturday, he's going down to the local synagogue, probably introduced there by Aquila and Priscilla. Hey, you want to come down to our synagogue? You're Jewish. Sure enough, Paul goes down there, starts hearing what they're about. They're talking about the Christ that's supposed to come. And Paul starts jumping in and teaching. I don't know if Aquila and Priscilla are already saved or if they end up hearing the truth from Paul, but they really get saved. And you can imagine at nighttime, these discussions they have at night and around their dinner table and early morning devotions. And Paul just begins pouring into them and discipling them. It's very important because, look down at verse number 18. After a year and a half, after this, verse 18, doesn't say a year and a half there, but earlier it said it. After this, it's being in Corinth for 18 months. Paul stayed many days longer, so that's the 18 months, and then took leave of the brothers. He is leaving Corinth, and he set sail for Syria. Oh, he's going to end the second missionary journey. He's headed back to Israel. And he takes with him, according to verse 18, Priscilla and Aquila. At Syncria, Luke gives us just a quick little note. Luke's with the team. He's like, yeah, I remember. At Syncria, at the port city, seven miles out of Corinth, Paul cuts his hair. For he was under a vow. Hey, I see you got your ears, Lord. Yeah, I was under a vow for a while. And I've cut this hair, and he's going to take the hair, and he's going to present it in Jerusalem as an offering. It was a Jewish thing. So they're leaving Corinth. Where are they going? Verse 19. 
And they came to Ephesus. They meaning, obviously, Aquila, Priscilla, Paul, and others of the team. Silas is with them, probably Timothy, perhaps Timothy. And apparently Luke is here. He's giving these first-hand eyewitness accounts, verse 19. They came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. What you will not see on the screen is kind of the rest of the story. I should have included it. The people in Ephesus want Paul to stay longer, but he declines. He needs to get back. So he leaves and heads back to Israel. But he leaves Aquila and Priscilla behind. Paul has laid a, started, just started laying a foundation of a church in Ephesus. He's got to go. He's going to come back. You got to stay and start building on what I have given. Skip down to verse 24. So while Paul is away, this is key. Now a Jew, watch all the things the Bible says about this man, Apollos. A Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, Egypt. This man is Egyptian and Jewish. He came, he came to Ephesus. Watch what the Bible says. He was an eloquent man. I mean, very gifted speaker. Just totally engaging. This guy's a powerful speaker. The Bible says here, the ESV says, competent in the Scriptures. The King James says, mighty in the Scriptures. And some even think he possibly had the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, totally memorized. And man, he's well trained in it. Verse 25. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent. I mean, he wasn't a monotone kind of preacher. Being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately. Boy, he's coming down to the synagogue in Ephesus. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Though he knew only the baptism of John. So he knows some things, knows a lot about the Old Testament, knows some things about Jesus, but he doesn't know everything. So here's what happened. Verse 26. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, this guy's awesome. Man, this guy really knows his stuff. Uh-oh, it becomes pretty clear. He doesn't know everything. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Did you catch it? Hey, why don't you come over to our house sometime? Oh, sure, I'd like to. Well, you really got the guy's hand on you. Have you ever heard this? No. Have you ever heard this? No. What about this concerning Christ? Where did you get this information? We're disciples of a man named Paul. He's the apostle to the... I've heard of this man. They end up discipling Apollos. Apollos goes to Corinth and he builds on the foundation that Paul had laid in Corinth. Can we have first, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4? 2 Timothy chapter 4, as we make our way back to Romans, okay? Make our way back to Romans 16. Before I read that text, I'm going to remind you of Romans 16 because it finds Aquila and Priscilla back in Rome. And then here, I know I'm throwing history, watch this. 2 Timothy is the last book Paul will write. This is after Romans. What does Paul say? Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. This is writing to Timothy, who is still presumed to be at Ephesus. Watch. Said all that, say this. Watch. Use my hand, imaginary map. Priscilla and Aquila, we know they begin in Rome, but they get kicked out. They end up coming down to Corinth. They meet Paul. Whether they get saved or just deeply discipled in the Lord, they end up being part of the work in Corinth. But after a year and a half, they're moved over to Ephesus. And they start being part of the work there. Paul leaves. Another man comes up from Egypt. They end up training him. He becomes a powerful man in the ministry. Romans 16 now finds us years later. They're back over at Rome. But 2 Timothy tells us that they're back at Ephesus. You're like, what in the world's going on with this couple? They're jumping all over them. That was God's will. God's will was for them to be here and then over here and then over here. And I'm assuming maybe they were... Whatever reason, we know the first time they're running from the government, we've got to get out of town, but after that, they're doing the Lord's work, and I think along the way, starting a new branch office of the tent-making work. Can you carry it on here in Corinth? We've got work. Paul's leaving, we're going with him. Church is established here. Off they go up to Ephesus. See you, Paul. We've got things here, and they get the business going here, and they're starting. The real work is the spiritual work, and they open their home, and they have people come into their home in Ephesus. Uh-oh, now we find them over in Roman, back in Rome, and they open up their home again, probably a large home because they're blessed financially. And then we find them back in Ephesus. Here's the point. Wherever they go, they're opening their home. Why? Because as Barclay says, they have an open heart and an open hand and an open door. They don't have this idea, don't come into my home. That's our castle. No one gets in here. Aquila and Priscilla are such a great part of the team because they always open their home and they minister and they build on the foundation that Paul has laid as a missionary. 
And that's two out of 26 people. And you can see why I'm not going to preach on the other 24, right? Teamwork. Teamwork. Number four. I think if you were to sit down with a piece of paper and pen, do a little bit of background, and just read Romans 16, 1 through 16, if you were to read it 10 times, back to back, cut everything off. I'm just going to read this 10 times. I think the next point would become very clear. Number four. Godly women should be honored. And all the women sit. No, never mind. Amen! No, I'm just kidding. Preach that. Preach that point really good. Okay. Godly women should be honored. What's my time? All right, good. Do y'all know that some have accused Paul of being against women? Paul's against women. That's untrue. That's a lie. Well, Jeff, if that's a lie, then why do people say that about Paul? I'll give you the main reason. Because in the book of 1 Corinthians and in 1 Timothy, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this isn't just him giving his opinion and babbling, he has to write what God, the Holy Spirit, tells him to write. It is God's Word coming through his pen. Paul tells the Corinthians in a key phrase there, he says, as it is in all the churches, he's talking about spiritual gifts and the right and proper use of spiritual gifts. He acknowledges that men and women have the gift of prophesying, but Paul says to the Corinthians, and as it is in all the churches, that the women are not supposed to take the position of teaching in the mixed congregation, in the main services of a church. They're not to take the lead position of teaching over the men. Paul backs it up when he writes the book of 1 Timothy. Timothy, who is the pastor, kind of the lead pastor in the churches of Ephesus, who's supposed to set things in order there, Paul starts writing to him and he says, tell the women that they should do this and this and this and that they are not to take a position of teaching over men in the mixed services and they're not to take the usurp, take by force a position of authority over men. Paul's against women. Paul hates women. No, he doesn't. He's just writing what God tells him to write. I think if you read Romans 16, 1 through 16, you would find the other is true. Paul highly values women. How do you know? Write these down. First of all, we note that at least, at least nine of the people in verses 1 through 16 are women. At least nine. More are represented behind these pronouns and these descriptions of all those with them. But at least nine of the 26 Second thing, you can't miss it. Almost every time, but not every time. Not the first time in the book of Acts, but almost every other time after that. Prisca, the wife, is listed before Aquila. Now, why is that? Some have proposed it's because Prisca was of a higher social order family. Maybe she was Roman, and we know that Aquila was Jewish. And though she's not Jewish, but married to a Jew, Claudius says, you've got to get out of here with your husband. You Jews leave. Or maybe she was Jewish also and her family was still a higher ranking social status than her husband Aquila. But here's what we do know. The Bible doesn't usually get caught up in those kinds of things. So we've got to ask ourselves, why is Prisca listed in front of Aquila? Most would offer the following. She's the more gifted speaker. She's the more gifted teacher. She had the greater influence on the church. Praise the Lord for Aquila, running a great business. They worked that together. But when it comes to church things, apparently Prisca is the one who takes, she has the greater influence and she uses that in these private settings like she did and they did with Apollos. Another hint, look at verse number six. Would you look back there? Can't hit it all, but look at verse six. Greet Mary who has worked hard for you. This is important, verse 12. Greet those workers in the Lord. You don't see it there in English, but greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis who has, here it is again, worked hard in the Lord. So verse 6 and verse 12 uses a phrase. What it means is have worked hard means to the point of exhaustion. That's given about four people. So Paul says, hey, fellow prisoner, fellow worker, there's a servant, hey, a kinsman. Sister, all these wonderful things. Four people out of 27 are said to have been hard workers, working not just really hard, to the point of exhaustion. All four women. All four women. So I propose to you, we need to be thankful for hard-working women in the church. 
I don't find it surprising that if we take just the Southern Baptist churches, we do three yearly offerings, right? We do an offering around Easter for the North American Mission Board, North American. We're in an offering state right now around our state for state missions. And then again in Christmas time, we do another offering for, in, for the International Mission Board. The one in the spring is the Annie Armstrong. The one we're in right now is called the Janie Chapman. The one coming in a couple of months is the Lottie Moon. Why is that? Because most of the mission work done in the history of the world has, most of it, not all, most of it has been done by women. And when the dudes were over there arguing and fussing and fighting about if we even need to be spending money or resources on foreign missions, the women are just letter writing and pounding and just consist. It's called now among Southern Baptist churches, not, not unusual that it's called the Women's Missionary Union. Why? Because the men usually forget about souls on foreign fields and the women are the ones who's out there doing the work and keeping it on the forefront. They're the ones who go more, much more than men. It's just facts. I'll give you one more hint out of chapter 16. When I ask you a question, I can't give you long to answer. You could go home and answer it. What's the most valuable document you've ever written? Most valuable document you've ever written? Most important one. It's had a lot writing on it. Maybe you say it's a love letter. I wonder what a love letter. That was the most important thing ever. Okay, maybe. Some of you are saying it's a college paper. And I had that one. It was a dissertation. Everything was writing on that. Most important piece of paper I ever wrote. Some of you say it was a job, pro job proposal. Others would say it was a job quote. I had to land that job. When I got that one, that really put my business going and everything flowed from that. That was the most important. Some of you would say there was the speech I had to give one time and my notes were so important. Have you ever written anything as long as Romans? They didn't have a Xerox. I want to propose to you it's the most important letter in the history of the world. And Paul says, I got just the person to deliver it, a woman. I needed to get there. You'll get it there. She got it there. She got it there. One copy. Godly women are to be honored. I don't want to be mean. I don't want to harm, damage spirits. But I'm going to make some brief comments. And so I'll keep my tones low. Godly women desire godly men to lead. Jeff, don't you think there's some women who will take over the church? Sure there are. Godly women want godly men to lead. But godly women get very frustrated when we men are indifferent and unengaged. I know some of these, but not a lot. What? A zealous man of God who's not in vocational ministry is hard to find. They're rare. Men, be one. You say, I want, I want my life to count. I want to be different. Not many men who are not in vocational ministry have a zealous, passionate heart for God. I wrote this this morning, last night. A very common scenario that we find in our churches, it's not new, it's been for hundreds of years. Here's the common scenario. You have a wife with a passion for God, a zeal to want to serve God, but a husband who by his testimony is saved, but frankly, he's indifferent. He's apathetic. He's unengaged. He's not passionate for God. She is. If that is you, I, I know by me even saying this right now, some hearts are starting to flutter and you're thinking, please don't go home and talk about it. Don't go home and talk about what I'm saying. Just here, let me offer this. I don't want to make it uncomfortable. I realize it immediately becomes uncomfortable. If this is you, if in your heart you say, I am married to a woman who has a heart and a passion to serve the Lord, I don't, what should I do? Number one, well, say it nicely. Don't you dare be a wet blanket for her spiritual desires. Don't you do it. What should I do then? You need, to, um, just as a friend, I'm trying to tell you the truth in love. Please realize you will stand before God one day and give an account of your lukewarmness and your indifference. You say, I know I'm going to heaven. You're going to stand at the judgment seat of Christ. When you see the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to be extremely ashamed. I will too of my level of love and my lack of love. But men, I'm telling us, we're going to stand there and we're going to have some regrets. You know this. You will stand before God one day. You will give an account of your coldness. You will give an account of holding her back. 
You say, well, what will happen to her? My opinion? My opinion. I believe she will be judged for her heart. Men, don't put your wife in a difficult position of serving God and loving God with all of her heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving Him, serving Him, or obeying her husband and submitting to her husband like God says to do. You put her in an impossible position. God says, love me with all your heart, serve me with your life, present your body a living sacrifice. Oh, by the way, submit to your husband. So, God, which, which is it? Am I supposed to? He's over here. He forbids me or he hinders me. Why are you going to put your wife in a position where she can't lose? Hey, preacher, what do you suggest to women when they're in that situation? I'd say, you know what? My, my best guess would be serve when you can. Be submissive. Surrender to your husband. The Bible's clear on that. Serve when you can, and hopefully his heart will warm toward it and pray like crazy and do as much as he allows you to do. But you make it impossible for her if you forbid and squelch and hinder and douse. Is that all, Jeff? No. A couple more. Don't be a wet blanket. Realize you're going to stand before the Lord. Fall on your face and ask God to give you a double dose of what she's got. That's my advice. Find some time this week. God, I want that and I want more. It's not too late. You still breathing? It's not too late. And then lastly, I'd say encourage her, empower her, emulate her, lead her. Number five. If we learn anything out of Romans 16, just a list, right? It's just a list. We learn this. We are family. We are family. Now you're hearing that song in the 70s with the Pittsburgh Pirates. We are family. Uh, what is up with these Christians? You go around there and they're calling brother so-and-so and sister so-and-so. Are they kind of like the lodge? Is it like the lodge? Is it like maybe people in the military? They become a band of brothers. They train together. They work together. They fought together. Some of them have died together. They just jail and bond. And that's a band of brothers. No, those are symbolic what we're talking about here is real, literal, spiritual, eternal. We are family. Yes, there's people called sister, brothers, brothers and sisters is implied by the Greek in these 16 verses. How are we possibly of the same family? Two reasons. Number one, we share the same father. We share the same father. We're family. We share the same father. I want to be real clear here. Watch this. There is one child of God by nature. This is important. One child of God by nature, his name is Jesus. 2,000 years ago, the name Jesus was applied to the Christ. Before that, he was the anointed one, the promised one, the Messiah, the Christ that is to come. But before that, before Genesis, what was it? He's the eternal son of God, one with God. He's of the nature, he's the only child of God. But God made a rule that the eternal son of God, who was the Christ, the Messiah, anointed, promised one, 2,000 years ago, became a man. His name is Jesus. He entered humanity. He maintained being the Son of God, the eternal Son of God by nature. Here's God's rule. This is important. Anyone who puts their trust, faith, belief, yes, who puts their trust in what Jesus did on the cross to count for them, he's dying on the cross. He's buried in a tomb. He rises again from the dead. I'm trusting that, and God's promises to count for me. You become the adopted child of God based off of Romans 1 and John chapter 1, verse number 12. You enter the family. Question, are you in the family? Second reason we know we are a family is not only because we share the same father, but we share the same address, and it's not 120 Centerville Lane, Centerville Road. Did you catch the address? It was all through here. Watch. Hey, look. Ten times. Ten times in 16 verses, Paul tells us why we are family. Ten times we share the same address. You heard it ten times this way. In the Lord, in Christ. In Christ. So Jeff, this sounds a little bit like Paul bringing home what he wrote in chapter 6 and chapter 8. Absolutely. Can I do this? I know you're tired of hearing it, those of you that were here in chapter 6 and chapter 8. This in Christ and in the Lord. Hey, they served me in the Lord. And we were in bonds in prison in the Lord. And greet them in the Lord. What does that mean? This needs to be repeated because it's such an important doctrine. I find people hear it and it kind of goes in. 
It's there for a short, short period of time, and it just kind of leaves. And if you ask them three months later, after you've taught Romans 6 and Romans chapter 8, what does it mean to be in Christ? I don't know. It's an address. It's a real place. So what does it mean? Jesus, the Son of God, is on a cross. You, like me, were born in Adam. Adam is our father. We all go back to Adam. He sinned. We inherited his sin nature. We're all in Adam, under condemnation, born in sin. God makes a law. If anyone will put their faith in his only begotten Son of God by nature, his death on the cross, you will be what's called baptized into Christ. You are placed into Christ so that whatever happens to him happens to you. I've said this over and over. If you're in a bus and the bus goes to Disney World, you go to Disney World. If you're in a bus and the bus goes over the cliff, you go over the cliff. If you're in Jesus, and Jesus is on a cross, dying for sin. You're on a cross, dying for sin. Jesus goes in a tomb, buried, really dead. You're in a tomb, buried, really dead. Jesus rises from the dead. You're in Him. You rise from the dead. You get eternal life. Are you in Christ? If you're in Christ, you're in the family. You have to be there. It's a real place. It's a real address. That's where the blessings are. Oh, beautiful day. This food tastes good. The real blessings are in Christ. Everybody gets the other ones. Number six and finally is in verse 16. We're called to express loving greetings. Verse 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I really started this week thinking, this is my opportunity to have a good short sermon because there's not much in this passage. This is the, this is the week... I already know that Renee is going to remind me tomorrow. It went an hour and what? And we've got to cut it down. I know, I know, I'm sorry. Very quickly, very quickly. And I'll just close in prayer after this. We are called to express loving greeting. Scripture says to greet one another. Will you obey the Scripture? Will you obey? A couple of points. Don't always wait to be greeted. I have no one in mind. But I, and by the way, I don't think this really goes on. Please don't be one of those that has your feelings right there on your sleeve all the time and they're just as raw as they can be. And you're noting every person that walks by you and they didn't stop and say anything to you. Meanwhile, you never say anything to anybody else. Don't wait on to be greeted. Initiate the greeting yourself. And give some grace. They may be headed somewhere in a real hurry that you didn't know about. Initiate the greeting. But Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss. A holy kiss was part of that culture. You've seen this, right? You've seen that Middle Eastern culture. If they like you, what do they do? Hey, kiss you on the cheek. If they really like you, kiss you on the cheek. And the other cheek. Hey, I really like that one. If they really, really like you, you're like, uh-uh. Oh, yeah. They kiss you on the cheek, kiss you on the other cheek, kiss you right in the mouth. They really, really like that person. That's gross. That's not very, that's, that's not very sanitary. In that culture, that was expected. Let's just be honest. In our day, that could be perceived in our culture very inappropriate. I get that. And by the way, some knucklehead, perverted, devilish person could take that opportunity. I wish they would because they want to twist that and make it inappropriate. And so I realize in our culture that just doesn't fly. So we're not going to teach this as literal. But, hear me. Don't dismiss Paul's call for an expression of physical welcome. A physical expression of welcome. In our culture, a hearty handshake. I'm not saying it has to be a Brian Simmons handshake, but work toward that. Work toward that. You're like, who's Brian Simmons? Hang around long enough, let Brian shake your hand. He don't, you don't have to tell your name. You won't have to hear his name. You'll know. You're Brian, right? Yeah, he's Brian. A hearty handshake and an appropriate hug, this is important, without partiality. I'm reading that in James this week. James chapter 2. Did y'all read that? Some of you read that? Right? Picture it for church. Whoa, what, happened? what in the world is that out there? Big Lamborghini, Lamborghini Ferrari flies up in the parking lot. Pay no attention to the 
handicap parking and they go right and they kind of do diagonal where they take up three spaces because don't want anybody hitting Lamborghini. The wings go up and out they come and all of a sudden everybody's like, that's an awesome car. That's like $300,000. You must be really wealthy. Hey, where do you want to sit? Come on in. Let me introduce you. Hey, Chris, you need to come meet that. Uh, Jeff, hey, Mike, Brandon. He got, hey, hold on. Meanwhile, somebody else walks into our church. Eh, ain't got time for them. Because we're making such a big deal about this person over here. It's got some money. Physical expression, a hearty handshake, an appropriate hug, doesn't matter, wealthy, beautiful, popular, smelly, doesn't matter. We love you. We are glad you're here. People want to be loved. People want to be appreciated. Have you loved on anybody today? That's my question. It sends a powerful message to the person, and it sends a powerful message to people who don't know know Christ yet. All they know is this. Those people down there, they love each other. It's kind of weird, but I kind of like it. I'm going to hang around there a little bit longer. They kind of love on me, and I'm not even one of them. I close with this thought. This is not me. You're like, Jeff, you hit us last week about our money right before you left. Thought you liked sports. I do. I love sports. Why is it that commonality of team colors and logo, why is it that commonality of team colors and logo often summons more affection than commonality of Heavenly Father, eternal life, salvation, spiritual family. We'll go to a game, hit the wings place afterward, don't know anybody there, but we'll strike up 50 conversations because they're wearing your color and your logo but you come to the house of God and you don't have time. You schedule it where you can get here at the last minute and you're already scheduling it where you can leave immediately and have no human interaction. That's not right. It's just not right. Who have you greeted this morning? Arrive a little early. I understand there's times. Got to leave. I understand. But try to have some human interaction. The church's people. Love people. Paul did. Let's pray.